0: January 31, 1974, Katoomba, New South Wales. Nurse Florence Jackson, 49, is attacked and dragged inside her house. She would be raped and strangled with a towel stuffed down her throat and her face covered by a blanket. This is the story of the Lonely Hearts killer, Rodney Francis Cameron. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Islanders, tonight's show will get the rage happening for sure. Another one of those cases where the perp has been let back out into society to reoffend after the parole board deemed them rehabilitated. Okay, so let's get stuck into it. So who is this week's scumbag, Rodney Francis Cameron? Well, he was born the 30th of May 1952 at Kew in Melbourne. At the time of his birth, his father had already died. His mother then worked a full-time job only weeks after his birth, leaving Cameron in the care of neighbours. He was fostered out by the age of four. He would witness his mother drop dead of a heart attack when he was only aged six years old and this happened as she took a cake out of the oven. He would then be adopted out and become a bit of a handful, duping neighbours out of money, and he became a vandal. Now, on just a side note, his real name is Rodney Francis Mallard, but he took on the name of his adoptive parents at a later date. I tried to find out that date, but was unable to, so I will refer to Rodney as Rodney Cameron, not Mallard, during the show just to avoid confusion. Anyway... Cameron, at 8 years old, had a foster sister, a young girl, that was also a ward of the state. Well, she left the house and it seemed to affect Cameron deeply. After his foster sister left, he started to attack little girls at school. When he was about 10 years old, he tried to strangle a schoolgirl. It was around this time he was sent to Juvie for putting boxes on railway lines. The psychiatrist that assessed him reported that no therapy that was available would be of use to him. Cameron later tried to strangle an elderly woman after jumping her and throwing her to the ground. She also survived as well as one of his girlfriends that he also attempted to strangle. By around 19 years old, he was heavy into booze and started not only consuming, but dealing drugs, in particular LSD, heroin and morphine. He was admitted to Gladesville Hospital on four occasions after failed suicide attempts. His adoptive family ended up having nothing to do with him, with the mother telling reporters in 1971 when asked if she had any suggestions or alternatives for his future, well, she said, yes, drown him. So (laughs) here we have a psychiatrist saying that no therapy that was available would be of use to him and his adoptive mother saying he should be drowned. I mean, boom, fuckalunga. In late 1973 and early 1974, Cameron is living with his wife Anne and brother-in-law Ronald Carter at 104 Camp Street, Katoomba. He's working as a nursing aide at the Queen Victoria Nursing Home at Wentworth Falls. He ends up losing his job and on the 27th of January 1974 he has a huge domestic with his wife and gets kicked out or he leaves the matrimonial home. It's on the 31st of January 1974 when Cameron is walking up Lurleen Street in Katoomba and sees one of his former colleagues, Florence Jackson, outside her house. They'd met at the Queen Victoria nursing home where she was also working as a nurse. She's 49 and very frail as she suffered various ailments. He starts to chat and Florence asks him in for tea. Cameron asks if there's any handyman work that she'd like to have done. Florence offers him the job of painting the front of a house and he immediately climbs a ladder and gets to work. Florence then offers him another cup of tea. As Florence comes out of the house with the tea, Cameron from the elevated height of the ladder kicks Florence in the shoulder. She screams and tries to run away into the house but Cameron follows her. He grabs her and drags her into the bedroom. He then viciously beats her across the head and starts to strangle her. She passes out and he rapes her on the bed. Cameron then grabs a towel and stuffs it into her mouth and strangles her to make sure she is dead. As if he's ashamed of what he's just done, he covers Florence's face with a towel, takes a bank book, checkbook, money and any valuables he can find, then leaves the house. He then leaves and goes to Lura train station, where he changes out of his overalls and dumps some of the property he stole from Florence's Florence's house. He then uses Florence's checkbook to get money from several local businesses. He then goes to the local post office, posing as Florence's son. He sent a telegram which says Florence has been injured and tries to use this to get money out of a bank account. The post office are sus of him and they refuse to let him withdraw any money. Good on you, the post office. He then makes a large order with a catering company for food and pays with a cheque. Because of that, they let him cash another cheque. He then goes to a deli and asks if he could get some groceries – but he could only pay by check the grocer asks whose check and cameron replies that it is a check made out to him from a lady he's done work for today the grocer says that he can give him some food and will write his name down in the credit book and when the check cashes to come back and pay him cameron writes his correct name and address in the book takes the groceries and leaves now I wonder how many places still have a credit book like that nowadays. It's all just tap and pay. So Cameron has been all over town and a lot of people have noticed him along with the people he's actually talked with and done business with. He's doing this all the time using Florence's checkbook. He then goes to a phone box and calls the Queen Victoria nursing home he used to work for and asks for Nurse Craig. The matron on duty says she's not on shift and then Cameron tells her that he is her brother and that he needs her address to tell her that their parents had been in a car accident. He goes on to say that she would not be into work for a couple of weeks while she took care of them. She gives him Nurse Craig's address and he takes a cab to her place in Blackheath which is about 13 minutes drive back towards Sydney. When he gets to Nurse Craig's house, he tells her he needs to talk to her about him losing his job at the nursing home. She lets him into the house and he soon starts making sexual advances towards her until he's interrupted by two of her friends that turn up. They'd been sent by Matron to just go and check up on her after the call she'd got from the so-called brother. Now, well, lucky for Nurse Craig, but I suppose the Matron shouldn't have given out her address in the first place Glad that she sent a couple of the other nurses down to check on her, especially given that Cameron told her that Nurse Craig would not be into work for a couple of weeks, so it's clear he was probably going to murder her as well. Cameron then starts to hitchhike towards Melbourne. It would not be until Saturday morning, the 2nd of February, that Florence's body would be discovered, after neighbours noticed that they hadn't seen her and her dog was alone barking at the front door. Police soon have witnesses telling them they last saw Florence talking with a young guy that wore a brown jacket. It's not long before they find out the name of this guy once they ask surrounding businesses and find he's used Florence's checkbook and signed the back of the checks with his real name and address. In a first His name and photo are issued to the press by police in order for the public to help catch an offender. So before that, people's faces were not shown in the media uh, or their their full names. Anyway, Cameron is hitchhiking on the way to Melbourne and it would be said that he wanted to go back to where he grew up in Kew and that's near Melbourne. What is known is that he accepts a couple of lifts on the 5th of February the last one from a Chester who ran an Aboriginal hostel at Namarala in which Cameron stayed that night and signed the guest book again using his real name. The next day, the 6th of February, Chester drops him off at the South Gibson Highway. The next ride Cameron got was from a 21-year-old bank clerk, Francesco Siliberto, and that was around lunchtime. Frank was on a holiday to Sydney from Melbourne and it was his first real break from the family and work. They drive to the seaside town of Mallacoota which is about a six hour drive east of Melbourne. It's said by Frank's family that he knew the area there as he used to do relief filling work for the bank at times. Once there, Frank and Cameron take a walk down towards the water along the rocky cliffside. Here Cameron picks up a rock and smashes Frank on the back of the head. Frank collapses and Cameron continues to smash the rock into Frank's head then strangle him with a football sock until he was sure he was dead. Cameron then takes Frank's wallet, his checkbook and car keys before stuffing a shirt sleeve in Frank's mouth and then covers Frank's face with his jacket. Now, That's the same one that many witnesses in Katoomba has described Cameron as wearing days before. Cameron then drives off in Frank's Tirana towards Queensland. Now, at 3pm, Frank's body would be found by passers-by and police are called to the scene. Official court documents say he was found the day he was murdered, but other reports say he was found days later. Look, it doesn't really matter in the short and tall of the story, but I just want to let you know. At 3.15pm, Cameron is seen driving Frank's car near Malacuta. Later that day, a constable intercepted Cameron driving the Tirana south of Batemans Bay. Now, that's about a three and a half hour drive north of Malacuta towards Sydney. Cameron gave the officer Frank's driving licence and was issued a ticket and he drove on north. You see, back in the day, we only had paper driver's licenses with our photos, so it was easy to use someone else's identity to drive a car or get into a pub at an early age or whatever. By the 12th of February, Cameron had made it to Cairns in Queensland. Now, this would take a minimum of a day and a half driving to get there as it's about 3,000 kilometers from where he killed Frank and stole his car. Now, he'd erased Frank's signature from the driver's license and substituted it with a version of his own and had been paying for food, accommodation and fuel with checks from Frank's checkbook. It was on the 12th that he was spotted by a cop in Cairns and on the 20th of February, the Tirana was found broken down and abandoned at Mariba, that's about an hour's west of Cairns. Inside, the wallet of Frank's brother, and a backpack belonging to Cameron. Now, I, I don't know what Frank's brother's wallet was doing in there. Anyway, on the 21st of February, Mary Wallace was at home at Kalen, north of Mackay, with her two children aged two and a half years and four and a half months. Cameron had abandoned his car and had hired one, which he drove to the Wallace's home. He knocked on the door and asked if he could have water for his radiator. Cameron then grabbed Mary from behind and held a knife at her side. He demanded money and wanted her car. Mary showed him $100 which was in a drawer and Cameron took it. He then ordered Mary into the car and told her that the children would have to stay behind in the house. As Cameron took Mary to her car, two and a half year old Susan followed and jumped in the back seat. He drove them around Mackay and decided to buy a drink from a service station. He pulled into the service station at Serena and that's about 20 minutes drive south of Mackay. As he opened the lid of the coke fridge and was pulling out the bottle, Mary screamed and told little Susan to run and they both fled the car as Cameron ran towards it. Cameron then jumped into the car and took off with the passenger side door still open. He abandoned that car soon after and hitched a ride southbound. By then, a roadblock had been set up and Cameron was arrested. At this time, New South Wales and Victorian police were notified and they were able to interview Cameron in relation to the murders of Florence Jackson and Frank Ciliberto. In the meantime, Cameron was remanded in custody on charges of stealing $100 with violence from Mary Wallace unlawfully using a car and falsely pretending a check drawn on the National Bank was valid. Eventually, Cameron would be extradited to New South Wales and be charged with the murder of Florence Jackson at Katoomba. He was also charged by Victorian police with the murder of Frank Ciliberto. Cameron would tell detectives when asked about the death of Florence Jackson, Yes, I murdered a woman in Katoomba. I will tell you everything. I raped her and I strangled her with my hands. He also said that he attacked her when something inside him told him to kill. After a six-day trial, Cameron was found guilty of murder after prosecutors rejected a plea of manslaughter because of diminished responsibility. The 12-man jury only took an hour to decide the outcome. Cameron would be sentenced to life imprisonment. Ha <laughs> ha! Life, you would hope, would would mean he's been put away for a long time, wouldn't you? But no. Cameron was released on license after serving only nine years of his sentence, for fuck's sake. Now, to clarify, to be released on license is pretty much the same as getting parole. Now, according to Island Barrister Diony, To be released on licence was an alternative to parole in 1984, according to the Parole Act of 1983, but it was abolished in 1989. So there you go. You murder someone and after nine years, you're let out. But, of course, the Victorians got their opportunity to extradite Cameron to face the murder charge of Frank Silberto. So not all is lost, you'd think. They convict him and sentence him to life imprisonment also. Now, that's not too bad. At least he's back inside for life. You must now get ready for the real rage. There is a change or reform to the Sentencing Act in Victoria soon after Cameron is sent to prison. Now, as part of the reform, prisoners with life sentences can have their sentences looked at and altered to reflect the new legislation. In most part fixing a minimum term. So when his case comes up to fix a minimum term, the judge has the following to say, and and I may paraphrase a bit and cut some of the legal mumbo-jumbo out, but he says, while in custody, Cameron has undergone studies in the area of marine biology and other environmental issues to a certificate level. This gives him some prospect on his release. Also, whilst in custody in Victoria, he's married. Well, hasn't she caught a great guy? His wife is present in court. And I have heard evidence from Mrs Patterson, a retired prison welfare officer who's known him since 1984, to the effect that he has shown considerable improvement in his attitude and maturity, and she sees prospects in the future. He also goes on to say, however... The main problem confronting me is how to deal with this question of the minimum term in the light of the fact that he has now spent nearly 16 years in custody since his original arrest. Now that means the original arrest in Queensland before he was extradited to New South Wales where he served just nine years as I told you before. Now let's cut to the chase. His life term in Victoria is cut from life to just seven years. What the fuck? Because the judge has to re Cameron as if his sentence started when he was first arrested in 1974. So in effect, the sentence for the second murder is 16 years, but instead of starting from 1984, it's backdated to 1974. So he's up for release within a year of re Now, you can imagine the family of Frank, how they got their justice. This scum was locked locked away for life. But in reality, that sentence will only be seven years and he's up for parole soon after, within a year. What the the fuck is going on with these people? The judge says that on its own, a term of seven years looks inadequate. But looking at both murders together, it is the lesser of two evils to let him out as if both sentences were served concurrently, than the greater evil of imposing the longer sentence separately. Now, saying it was the only, only the state boundaries that caused the murder trials to be conducted at different times. For fuck's sake, the lesser of two evils? No, this cunt is evil. He murdered two people in different states. Tough titties he should not get any benefit of concurrent sentencing. But what the fuck do I know? Now, while he was serving out the last few months of this pathetic seven-year sentence, which is life, Cameron was plotting his next murder. Yes, that's right. He was plotting his next murder, flipping the bird at the piss-weak justice system that will let him out after 16 years for killing two people two people that offered to help him out, two people that had done nothing to him, nothing to deserve being viciously attacked and their life taken from them. So in March the 12th, 1990, Cameron is paroled and goes to live with his wife, Anne. At the time, Radio 3AW would run a nighttime Lonely Hearts matchmaker program where you could ring up and tell the audience about yourself And if anyone was interested, they could call in and swap details. So it's just like an ancient Tinder. Well, Cameron got on the air one night and he told them how he didn't smoke, had a GSOH, which everybody knows, good sense of humour, how he was a marine biologist, was looking for someone to share his happiness and all that bullshit. He forgot to mention he was a double murderer and married. Anyway, Maria Golnar, a lonely 44-year-old unemployed clerk from Baronia who was looking for someone kind and generous to share a life with, liked what she heard about Cameron. They talked and on the 19th of June, Cameron left his job and in Maria's car, they drove towards Katoomba in New South Wales. Now, that's about a 12-hour drive. They arrived at the Skyrider Motor Inn the next day, Wednesday the 20th of June. Now, Cameron had already paid for the room in advance and had requested a do not disturb sign. Now, again, these days these dates are hard to confirm, but that doesn't detract from the story. Just I just want to let you know. They checked in and had a nice lunch. Now, we do know on the Friday on Friday the 22nd of June, motel staff saw Maria and Cameron together at around 1.30pm. They ordered breakfast for the next morning and Cameron asked what time the room would be cleaned. Maria and Cameron then went back to the room. Once in the room, they had a few drinks and then Cameron attacked her by bashing her over the head. She collapses back on the bed while Cameron continues bashing Maria in the face. He gets his necktie and binds her hands together. He then strangled her with his bare hands. He then stuffs his hanky into her mouth, and then gets a pair of her stockings, and ties it around her throat, making sure she's dead. He then drags her into the bathroom, gets a bouquet of flowers that was in the room, and places them on her body, and as he'd done before, placed a bath mat to cover her face. He then writes a confession letter to his wife, Anne, saying, My dearest Anne, if I'd not done what happened, my life would have been destroyed. Love eternally, Rodney. He then takes Maria's car and drives south. Cleaners find Maria's body the next morning and police are called. As Cameron had registered under his own name, police were able to begin a manhunt for him straight away. Cameron contacted his wife a few days later, telling her that there was a third person involved and that he was innocent. He told her that he was prepared to give himself up. His wife Anne called police and relayed his message and Cameron did give, him, give himself up at Daniliquin Police Station, seven and a half hours drive, southwest of Katoomba. Police noticed that he was calm and collected. Now, typical serial killer lack of remorse or emotion. But when he was asked for his fingerprints, he went off. After he calmed down, he told police that they were travelling with a Frederick Molnar, but police were unable to locate anyone of this name or description. Also, no witnesses saw this phantom third person that Cameron said actually murdered Maria. Cameron is charged with murder, and in a first his previous convictions are allowed to be presented in court. Now, this is extremely rare as it is prejudicial to his case, but because the other two murders were so alike, they were admitted as evidence in his trial. Finally, Cameron is sentenced to life without parole and the judge saying that he hoped that he would never be released until he was too old or infirm to cause harm to anyone. Fuck if they just not let him out in the first place (sighs) now this is not the end of the story Cameron while inside would brag about other murders he committed the inmates grasped on him to police and then they were set up with a wire to record the confessions apart from a couple of stabbing murders in South Australia and two women he murdered in Melbourne They would all turn out to be bullshit, but he would confess to the 1974 murder of 79-year-old Mrs. Sarah McKenzie in her home at Milsons Point in Sydney. He would be charged with this murder, but deny he had anything to do with it. But later, charges would be dropped because of lack of evidence. She was murdered on the same day as Cameron murdered Frank Ciliberto, apparently. She'd been bashed, stabbed with a garden fork and hit in the head with a mattock, which was still left standing in her skull. She was then covered with a blanket. Eventually, the Director of Public Prosecutions dropped the charges as all the evidence was circumstantial. Her murder remains unsolved. He even hinted to police that he pushed a guy off the Sydney Harbour Bridge, but police put all this down to him playing games with cases he'd read or heard about. So, Islanders, this disgusting scum finally was put behind bars for life. But you've got to wonder that if he'd just been left inside in Victoria, at least one of his victims would not have lost her life. How someone so violent can be let out after first doing only nine years in New South Wales and then seven years in Victoria makes you fucking wonder. What's wrong with these fucking judges? What is wrong with the judicial system that allows this? He was nothing but a dangerous psychopath that from an early age showed signs of what was to come. Fuck's sake. I mean, even his mum said drown him. So this is the end of the episode. And I, look, I hope you got the rage as I did. So as usual at the end of the show, we go on to the Patreon shout outs. It's a big hi to Ken Arnold, who upped his pledge. Elizabeth Campbell on the silver level. Catherine Byrne, also on the silver deck chair level. Hi also to Sean MacArthur. Hi to Spricket, Sprinkle Sprocket. Hi to Todd Harrison and Peter Hopton. And hi to Zoe Lettle, also on a silver deck chair. Thank you all very much. And a shout out to all the present and past patrons it does make a difference and it is appreciated greatly. As you know, True Crime Island is a listener-supported podcast, as I know you and I don't like ads. To join join the Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island. Or if you want to just do a one-off donation, you can go to paypal.me forward slash true crime island and help us out. We got PayPal from John Kelly and Susan Haywood over the last couple of weeks. Thank you very much. It is greatly appreciated. If you want to support the island in another way, just rate, review and share the podcast. And if you have friends or relatives that don't know what a podcast is, grab their phone and hook them up. If you want merch such as T-shirts, hoodies, beach towels, mugs of rage and even tote bags... Go to truecrimeisland.threadless.com where you can find a large range of official True Crime Island loot. But if you want keychains, lapel pins, koozies or stickers, you need to email me. My email's cambo at truecrimeisland.com as I post directly from the island. we we'll work out the payment, donation amount uh, on where you live and what you want. Don't forget to join the closed group on Facebook, hook up on Twitter and Instagram. The handle for those last two is at True Crime Island and just search for the Facebook group, True Crime Island. Our amazing mods or myself will let you in. Hi to Jason and Senga and our new mods, Erica and Susan. They've joined to help out the island. Thank you all so much. Now, I do try my best to answer all posts and emails. Look, if you really want to speak to me, then email is the best as I sometimes get lost in the Twitter feeds and Facebook feeds. I think I caught a few old Facebook ones the other day. Thanks to everyone that has reached out again this week with case suggestions. I am the only one here, so I'll try and get as many suggested cases done as I can. Next week. I will do the second birthday show, as I think the birthday was actually a couple of weeks ago. Now, promo's time, and I have two this week. The first one is from a great podcast from Roseanne called "California Dreaming. This promo is to promote one unsolved case. She's releasing the episode, it's episode uh, 64, The Unsolved Murder of Debbie Dorian. If you could have a listen and spread the word on that one, it would be fantastic and maybe you could help in this tragic case. The second one is from my two mates, Mike Morford and Mike Ferguson of Criminology fame. They are up to season four on their amazing podcast. Remember, they were the ones doing the Golden State Killer series. And during, during the season, Joseph D'Angelo was picked up and charged after a family DNA match. This season looks at the technology behind some of those recent cases. Plus, you can check out their other seasons, which include the Zodiac Killer, of course, GSK, and uh, Ted Bundy. Well, that's about it for tonight, and lots of love to Maggie James. So this has been Cambo, and you've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Boom, bugalunga.
1: 22, 1996, 22-year-old Debbie Dorian was discovered bound, gagged, raped, and murdered in her apartment. Her father was the one to have made the horrific discovery, and to this day, her killer has never been apprehended, and her case has gone cold. However, he did leave behind his genetic marker, his DNA. Though he would lay dormant for nearly three years, he did strike again, Raping at least seven more women in the Visalia, California area linked to all of those crimes through his DNA. But Debbie would be the only known victim to have died at his hands. With DNA technology having advanced by leaps and bounds over the last 22 years, as well as some recent very high profile cases in California that had long been cold being solved. It is our hope to shine a light on Debbie's case to bring this killer and rapist to justice and a measure of closure for Debbie's family and friends who have waited much too long for answers. With the blessings of Debbie's mother, Sarah, and the help and guidance of her best friend, Katina, California Dreaming and Orbital Jigsaw are bringing you their story in episode 64, The Unsolved Murder of Debbie Dorian.
2: Hi, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morford. And we'd like to invite you to check out our true crime podcast, criminology
0: in each season of criminology we take a deep dive to tackle some of the biggest cases in the history of true crime using classified police files and interviews with investigators experts
2: victims and survivors all in an effort to accurately and completely examine the cases we cover and season four of criminology is out right now we're taking on cases solved in 2018 using dna with the help of resources like parabon GedMatch, and forensic genealogy and we've got some great interviews this season with people like Paul Holes who helped bring down the Golden State Killer Curtis Rogers founder of Jedmatch Steve Armantrout the CEO of Parabon and Colleen Fitzpatrick a forensic genealogist who's had a hand in solving some of these cases
0: past seasons of criminology are available to binge including in-depth coverage of the Zodiac Killer the Golden State Killer and Ted Bundy
2: new episodes drop Saturdays at 10 o'clock p.m. and you can find and subscribe to Criminology on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app.